This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button portion stops here. Plug the radio in. us. You are listening once again to Evidence for Faith, the official voice of Ratio Christi. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hello, and I'm Kirk Hastings. And today's topic is going to be on evolution. We have an exciting guest with us. So we're going to be talking a lot about some new evidences that have come to light. But we want to remind you to check out our website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. You can find archived shows there. Also, if you do podcasts, you can go to iTunes for Apple devices, or if you have an Android and you want to listen to podcasts there, Double Twist is a great app that will get our podcasts, and check us out on Facebook at Evidence for Faith on Facebook. Also, don't forget to check out the ratiochristi.org website to learn more about Ratio Christi and its ministry. Well, Kirk, it's great to be back again this week. Thank you for doing a great job last week while I was gone at the EPS, the Evangelical Philosophical Society meeting. So things went well with you and Kirk and company? Yeah, we had a a good time with uh, Kevin and Jen last week uh, and some interesting discussion. Yeah, absolutely, on the problem with evil. Right. Hey, uh, let's not forget to do the quote of the week, too. This is one from John MacArthur. Take a listen to this one. He says, as Christians, we accept one foundational truth, God, and everything else makes sense. An atheist denies God and has to accept incredible explanations for everything else. It takes more faith to deny God than to believe in him. That is from John MacArthur. Okay. That pretty well sums it up, doesn't it? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And we're going to see how some of those explanations just don't make sense, especially in light of the evidence. And the more evidence that is found, the more problems the evolutionists have. We did receive a email from one of our listeners, and I was debating about reading this one, but here goes. This is from Eric. He says, recently on your show, you kept mentioning the documentary Zeitgeist as something some atheists use as proof of Jesus and the Bible not being real. So for those who are not familiar with the web YouTube movie Zeitgeist, you can take a look at it. It is um, very poorly documented. It's a, you know, like a conspiracy theory thing. And I don't, it says we, we keep mentioning we did a whole show on it about a couple of years ago, and then we I think we talked about it recently when we had Professor Mary Jo Sharp on because she is an expert in that field. But anyways, to continue with the letter, he says, while it's true that there are some atheists out there who dead, do sadly use this faulty piece as evidence, there's quite a few who do, and then I think I think he must have left off the word not, who do not. Is yeah, I, I think that second do is supposed to be don't. 
Right. Uh, then he says, if a caller on the public access internet show, uh, and then he mentions a, a show, an atheist show, brings up Zeitgeist, the host will immediately tear down how inaccurate the film is. Once again, I do understand that there are atheists out there who use it as an excuse. It always seems to be a showstopper, broken record when you bring it up because you just attack it for a while and, well... There are plenty of other reasons that people have come to reject atheism that is not in that film and not because of emotional reasons. So I'm, I doesn't really make sense, that sentence. I'm assuming he must mean plenty of reasons that people have come to reject Christianity. Yeah, it would make more sense that way. Yeah, so I, so, and of course, um, we do talk about those evidences too. We try to represent the atheists as clearly as possible, and we certainly know that the Zeitgeist movie is not the only reason people are atheists. Then he says, a last thing he says is, you also seem to go to Richard Dawkins quite a bit as your token atheist, which I can understand why, seeing as he is the most famous atheist as of now, you might take a look at some other famous atheists of recent times, such as Christopher Hitchens or Dan Barker. Of course, he, he doesn't mention Anthony Flew. Oh, that's right. Anthony Flew became a theist. Yes, he followed the evidence wherever it would lead. But yeah, we do, we do pick on Dawkins, and I think that's mostly because I think he's written the most books and seems to get quoted the most. And I think uh, I've heard a number of uh, Christians say that basically Dawkins and Hitchens say the same thing. So really, we could use either one of them interchangeably. Right, exactly. And I, I just finished yesterday, I just finished up watching the debate between Christopher Hitchens and William Lane Craig. And I'm telling you, the one of the atheist blogs apparently said that Hitchens was spanked like an errant schoolboy. <laughs> So uh you know if you want to if you want to see a good debate that's a great one I think that's available on YouTube. Well, I thought I would let the listeners know about the EPS a little bit just cuz we talk about it each year. There's it's a fascinating conference. It's a very high level conference. Lots of professors and authors go there, lots of graduate students go there. It's in coordination with the ETS, which is the Evangelical Theological Society meeting, and actually there's also an archaeological society that meets at the same time, and so you have so many choices. Each 40-minute time period, you had a choice this year of going to 37 different lectures, Hmm. so uh, all on topics of theology, philosophy, and archaeology. So I went to 20 different ones, and We've got a lot of material for future shows. I thought I'd just kind of tease people a little bit with some of the things we'll be talking about in the future. I found a lot of the archaeologists' talks the most interesting to me. So there's evidence now about the pharaoh Akhenaten who tried to impose monotheism on Egypt. And this archaeologist was showing how this came from Moses and sometimes People will argue that Moses got his monotheism from Akhenaten, but he showed that it's actually the other way around. Then another archaeologist looked at a possible site for the Tower of Babel, and this was very interesting. He explained that archaeologists haven't really been able to find anything that might be the Tower of Babel in Babylon, and he explains that lots of cities were called Babylon uh, in the ancient days. So what he did is he looked instead for a population dispersion So and found that there was one called the 
Uruk dispersion, which was a massive dispersion of, of people from Uruk, and researched it further, gave evidence that this city also was once called Babylon and showed that there was a massive building project at – there's something like 18 levels of temple there now, but at l- temple level number one is a massive building project and the foundations of a massive building project. So so we'll be talking about that on future shows. Then the, the theme of the EPS was on creation care. And so there were lots of lectures on how we as Christians have a responsibility to take care of the earth. So there were lots of things on that. Uh, let's see if there's anything else in particular. Oh, this was interesting. One of the other archaeology things went into the discoveries of metallurgy in Neolithic times. So in Neolithic times, there is evidence of some early types of working with metal. Um, and then actually in things like the Bronze Age, there was iron. And, you know, so it was very interesting that went over that. It's, it's apparently people were a lot smarter than we give them credit for. So that was very interesting. Uh, there was a great memorial for Chuck Colson. That was really interesting. Lots of people came and spoke about that, about him and his ministry. And let's see. Oh, then the EPS, since everybody, all the big names are there to give lectures and have their society meeting, they will do a project, an apologetics conference for the community, and they'll go to a nearby church and then present to the community. So there were several really good presentations. Lee Strobel spoke. William Lane Craig uh, spoke. He did this really funny thing since Richard Dawkins, speaking of Richard Dawkins, won't debate William, William Lane Craig. He did this thing called Eastwooding Dawkins, and he puts up an empty chair just like Eastwood did with President Obama and had a, a fake conversation with him. <laughs> He had this debate where and he used what Dawkins actually has said and then debated him. So that was really funny. He did it He did it in a really humorous way. So that was very clever. Then there was a professor, Craig Keener, who's done a lot of work on the evidences for actual miracles occurring around the world and uh, presented a lot of miracles that have been evidenced with medical documentation, x-rays and so forth. And uh, so that was very exciting. And we had Dr. Gary Habermas, one of the foremost experts on the resurrection, talked about the documentary evidence for uh, the resurrection and the earliness of it, that it's within one to two years of the resurrection. We have hard evidence that all the disciples uh, believed in the resurrection. So that's kind of in a nutshell what's going on, tons more. But we will get to some of that in future shows. Now, there was a news item that I had slated for today about and uh, something this comes from reasons to believe and if you sign up if you sign up for reasons to believe you can get an email and every day they'll send you some new evidence for christianity from the scientific community and this came across from dr fuzz rana who's going to be our guest today and it's on plant chromosome structures the headlines is plant chromosome structures challenge biological evolution so Instead of reading that news item, I think we're going to hear it from the horse's mouth. So I want to introduce our guest, Dr. Fuzz Rana. He is a Ph.D. in chemistry with an emphasis on biochemistry from Ohio University and has done postdoctoral work at the universities of Virginia and Georgia. And Dr. Rana was at EPS also, but I happened to miss him. 
So, Dr. Rana, let me uh, have you introduce yourself a little bit further to our audience so that you can explain who you are and what you do a little bit further. Sure, sure. Well, um, I'm a biochemist by training. Uh, in fact, uh, studying biochemistry in graduate school is what convinced me that life had to stem from the work of a creator. So I didn't grow up in a Christian home or have any kind of real Christian influence in my life as a young man. In graduate school studying biochemistry, I would have called myself an agnostic. And yet as I began to appreciate the elegance and the sophistication of life's chemical systems, as well as uh, coming to the conviction that chemical evolution couldn't really explain the origin of life, I became convinced that there had to be a creator and that led me to essentially exploring um, uh, the Christian faith about six months later and uh, through, through reading the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, surrendered my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, uh, being convinced that Jesus must be indeed who Christians claim him to be, uh, again, encountering Jesus through the pages of Scripture. And um, I currently am the uh, Vice President for Research and Apologetics at Reasons to Believe, which is a science-based think tank where we show how the latest discoveries in science provide evidence for uh, God's existence and the reliability of the Bible. Now, you have several uh, scientists there now. I'm familiar with Dr. Ross's work. I met him maybe 25 years ago out in California when he was all by himself, at least I think he was back in those days. And how many scientists are with Reasons to Believe now? Uh, well, we currently have uh, three full-time scientists, one part-time scientist. We have a, a philosopher and a theologian, a, as well as somebody who is all, has expertise in biblical, uh, uh, um, biblical studies. And then we also have uh, a number of volunteers around the world who work with us, uh, helping us to round out our areas of, of deficiency, if you will, on staff. And we're looking to add another scientist, hopefully within the next year or so. So we have a team that's growing in leaps and bounds, and that's exciting to me because it's really saying that there is a, a, a number of scientists and uh, a, a, a number of different disciplines who are convinced that the study of nature reveals powerful evidence for a creator and are willing to, in a sense, sign their name to that statement and be open about it, be outspoken about it, and dedicate their, their lives and their ministry to communicating those ideas uh, to not only the church, but people outside the church. And it seems like there's more and more evidence that keeps cropping up. But before we get too far past your conversion experience, I was really interested when I read your bio about that, that you read the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm just curious because I always like to know what it was about a certain argument or, or an approach that led them to the Lord. So if you don't mind, just what was it about the Sermon on the Mount that you found so appealing or so convincing? Well, uh, in, in a sense, I would actually argue that there wasn't an argument at all, but rather it was a religious experience, mm. for lack of a better way to describe it, that as I was reading through the Sermon on the Mount, I had this overwhelming sense of a presence, the Holy Spirit, I would argue, that was just simply revealing the person of Jesus to me. Uh, and so, you know, as I was reading what Jesus was saying, I was, this was a, uh, what I wanted to do, this is how I wanted to live, in terms of laying out the standards for his disciples. I also recognized there was no way that I could uh, live up to those standards, and I was attracted to the person of Jesus and very much wanted 
to, to please him, if you will. So I would say that it was really a religious experience, but that religious experience was set up by what I saw to be powerful evidence that indeed there had to be a creator that brought life into existence. And so it was evidence that convinced me a creator must exist, and it was really Scripture and God revealed through Scripture, Jesus revealed through Scripture, uh, you know, that brought me into the Christian faith. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are speaking with Dr. Fuzz Rana from Reasons to Believe. And Dr. Rana, you have written a book I'm holding in my hand, The Cell's Design. My son got this for me as a present a couple of years ago, and I have Unfortunately, I have to say I haven't gotten to it yet. It's on my reading list. But tell us a little bit about your book, The Cell's Design. Sure. Well, uh, this book is essentially uh, making a case that when one examines the fundamental systems of life, that is biochemical systems, these systems reveal powerful evidence for a creator's fingerprint, uh, for the, uh, the creator's artistry, if you will. And as I mentioned, as a graduate student, it was looking at biochemical systems that convinced me there had to be a creator. And I would argue at that time I had this overwhelming intuition of design, uh, primarily being impacted by the elegance and the sophistication and the cleverness of biochemical systems. And so the cell design is essentially an exercise that I went through, uh, and it, it, it literally it represents probably uh, a good 20 years of research but it was essentially trying to take that intuition of design and construct a formal argument for design. And what I do in that book is take uh, an approach very similar to that of William Paley, who uh, you know advanced the watchmaker argument. By analogy, as a watch requires a watchmaker, life requires a divine watchmaker or a creator, because Paley argued that the structure of living systems, the way they are put together, the way they operate, is highly similar to that of a watch, and therefore he argued by analogy, if a watch requires a mind, so too must life. And so I take that thinking and essentially contemporize it uh, by looking at advances in biochemistry, pointing out that the defining features of life's chemistry are identical to those features that we would recognize as evidence for the work of a mind. Uh, And it's intriguing that For example, when you look at DNA, DNA is an information-harboring system, and as are proteins, in fact, the cell's chemistry at its very essence is an information-based system, and this is in and of itself intriguing because we know from experience information comes from a mind, but what's intriguing is the way that that information is structured is identical to how we would structure information, and in fact, the way in which the cell's machinery manipulates DNA is identical to how a computer system fundamentally operates. And this recognition has led computer scientists to, to contemplate the idea of building computers around the DNA molecule. Uh, and, in fact, there is a number of uh, proof-of-principle studies that have been done showing that you can actually do computer applications with DNA and the enzymes inside the cell that would typically manipulate DNA for processes like replication and transcription. But the point here is that the similarity is so profound between, again, how biochemical systems are structured and how computer systems operate that it actually lends itself to developing new technology based on that insight. 
and, and this is just one example of a long list of examples I could go through and that I do go through in, in the cell design that show time and time again how, again, life's defining features at, at the chemical level are identical to human designs. And so it's a very, I think, a very powerful weight of evidence argument that one can bring to bear for uh, the necessity that life comes from the work of a creator. So it's taking the intuition of design and trying to formalize it into a design argument. Mm. Now, and it looks like you cover a lot of complex topics. Is this something that would be more suited to somebody who has had biology or chemistry in college, or is this accessible to a lay reader? Well, I think somebody who has had an introductory course in biology in college would be very comfortable with the book. Uh, if you haven't had a course in biology for a while, uh, you, you might struggle in, with the book in some spots, but I do everything I can to try to explain the biochemistry uh, so that a layperson who isn't familiar with it can at least have an appreciation of what I'm trying to argue. And the way I structure the book is that if you read the first couple of chapters and the last chapter, you'll get, the, you'll get essentially the point of the book, and then the chapters in the middle are where I give details that justify essentially the case that I'm making for a creator. So I've tried to structure the book so that even somebody who isn't familiar with biochemistry can walk away with the take-home point. And if you're willing to roll up your sleeves and work a little bit, I try to teach biochemistry as we go along in the book so that, again, a layperson can follow and appreciate uh, the, 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 the details of the argument. Some places that it's easier said than done. Uh, but nevertheless, I've, I've had a number of people who don't have backgrounds in biochemistry have, have told me that they were able to make their way through the book. In fact, uh, one person told me that they were using the book as a devotional, that as they would read through this, this was a, a reason for them to, in, a, in effect, worship God. Wonderful. Well, I really like the table of contents just gives you an idea of how in-depth the book is. I know on the show, Kirk and I have spoken about some of the uh, exciting discoveries of the complexity of the cell, the flagellar motor and uh, ATPase and polymerase and some of the work that it does. And I have to, when I show it to people, I have to keep reminding them that this is highly simplified, as complex as what I'm trying to describe to you sounds, it's actually in order to tell you about it, it's been highly simplified. And so if your your book goes through chapter by chapter and begins to fill in all the complexities that are going on simultaneously with uh, just one after another of all the complex systems and biochemical features of the living cell that just are incredible and overwhelming. So really gives you a sense of just how amazingly complex a living cell is. Doesn't seem to me like it could have started from a primordial soup. Yeah, I mean, as you know, we're coming to appreciate even the, 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 the complexity of life in its most minimal form, that the, the complexity is mind-boggling. And to think that something like that would have emerged through a, a chemical evolutionary process is very, very difficult to, again, it's very difficult to stomach. And, it, you know, again, it, the argument goes beyond just simply the intuition that this is way too complex for evolution to generate because you can make a very rigorous argument 
as to why chemical evolution simply doesn't work, or abiogenesis or the origin of life, those are three, in, in effect, comparable terms. In fact, I've written a couple of other books that deal with the inadequacies of, the, of chemical evolution. One would be called Origins of Life that I co-authored with Hugh Ross, and the other is a book called Creating Life in the Lab, where I look at attempts to try to create life in the lab as part of a new enterprise called synthetic biology, but also as part of the attempts of scientists to try to explain the origin of life. And again, you know, you can make rigorous arguments uh, that show that the intuition that we would have by looking at the cell's chemistry saying, whoa, that's just way too complex to be explained by evolution, uh, that, that intuition can be buttressed by a very rigorous argument from a, a chemical standpoint. So that, to me, is what's really exciting is that the intuition that even a layperson would have looking at life is, is buttressed by robust, rigorous arguments, whether from a design standpoint or from highlighting the, the chemical inadequacies of the origin of life. Mm. Well, let's get a little more into one of the more recent discoveries. This came across from Reasons to Believe, and the headline is Plant Chromosome Structures Challenge Biological Evolution. And I guess I'll read the first paragraph that kind of summarizes this discovery. And Dr. Ron, if you can fill us in on the details, it says here that researchers from France recently examined the structure of the coffee tree, tomato, and grapevine genomes. So that is the collection of DNA information for those species. Surprisingly, it says, the results of their work fail to satisfy a key prediction of the evolutionary paradigm, namely that the ordering of the genes along the chromosome, which is something that's called centeny, should reflect the evolutionary relatedness of these plants. Instead, these investigators found that the synteny of these genomes does not vary with the phylogenetic distance or the distance along the uh, tree of life. Can you explain what's going on there? This sounds really significant. As you mentioned, uh, the genome of an organism is the entire genetic makeup of that organism. And that genetic information is harbored in a molecule called DNA. And DNA is a very long linear molecule that uh, is composed of smaller molecules uh, that are abbreviated A, G, C, and T. And so it's the sequence of those letters, those genetic letters, that contains the information, just like the sequences of letters in a word contain the information uh, that, that, you know, that corresponds to that particular word. And it turns out that regions of the DNA molecule called genes encode information needed to make another type of molecule called a protein. And so um, when you look along the length of a chromosome, you'll have a number of genes uh, that, that occur back to back to back to back along the length of that, of, of that uh, DNA molecule. And, and it turns out that uh, evolutionary biologists believe that the ordering of genes along a chromosome is essentially a random ordering that Mm. arises through just random biochemical processes that happen to the genomes. And so the idea is that if you have an ancestral organism that produces different evolutionary lineages, those lineages, as they move further and further away from that ancestral organism, are going to experience random events that will shuffle the ordering of genes along the chromosome. So the further away you move from that ancestral organism, according to the evolutionary paradigm, the greater the degree of shuffling of those genes along the the chromosome, 
And therefore, the less and less the ordering or the sequence of the genes along the chromosome is going to be retained. And so this, the ordering of genes along a chromosome is called synteny. And so the argument is organisms that are closely related to each other in an evolutionary sense would have highly similar gene orders along the chromosomes. And organisms further related to each other, or more distantly related, I should say, would have a less, lesser degree of synteny. And so in this particular study, they were looking at the genomes of essentially uh, the coffee tree, the tomato, and the grape. And it turns out that the coffee tree and the tomato belong to the same biological group, and, and the, the grapevine is in a different biological group. So according to the evolutionary paradigm, the synteny of the coffee tree and the tomato should be, should be greater than the synteny that you would see be, between the grapevine and the coffee tree or the grapevine and the tomato. And when they actually determine gene ordering along the, the chromosomes of these different plants, they discovered it didn't match the predictions of the evolutionary paradigm, but rather showed a, a differing type of ordering um, where the coffee tree and the grapevine had a greater degree of synteny than did the coffee tree and the tomato. And so this is, again, one example of other studies I could point to that are similar to this that show that this relationship between uh, synteny and, again, the, the evolutionary relatedness of, of organisms simply doesn't hold. And so, you know, in science, if you make a prediction and that prediction is falsified, that provides powerful reasons uh, to, to believe that that theory is, is invalid. And so when right. the evolutionary model makes a prediction and that prediction fails, it's reasons for us to be skeptical of, of evolution as a way to explain the history of life on Earth. Great. So another prediction of evolution that has been falsified. Now, I can imagine, Dr. Rana, that the atheist or the evolutionist is just going to say, okay, well, maybe that's so, but all it means is that there's some kind of necessity of the genes being in a certain order, and, and whereas we thought they could be just randomly distributed across the DNA, that maybe there's some kind of reason why they have to be close to each other for certain reasons, bi biological reasons. So what would we say to that? Well, you know, in fact, um, th that actually turns out to be the case is that the, the, we're discovering more and more that the ordering of genes along, you know, uh, along the length of a chromosome or along the length of a piece of DNA actually has to be that way, typically speaking, that it has some kind of functional significance. And this actually is not an argument that, interestingly enough, favors biological evolution. Right. Uh, because uh, in order to argue that a feature like, let's say, synteny reflects the evolutionary paradigm, you have to argue that the ordering of genes along the chromosome is random, because that's the only way then it makes sense to interpret the data in an evolutionary framework, where, again, you would argue because the order is random, the fact that we see shared synteny between organisms we think are closely related to each other from an evolutionary perspective is why we think that this is evidence for common descent or for biological evolution. But as soon as that ordering along the chromosome has functional significance, now you could actually argue that this is reflecting not common descent but common design. Right. And, and so it actually is an argument for design as opposed for, to, to evolution. You know, what's interesting is that when evolutionary biologists are confronted with results like this, they typically will respond by saying, this, was, this is a surprising result, this was not what we predicted, but it must be telling us something 
fundamental about the evolutionary process that we have yet to discover. So it's interesting. So instead of a discovery like this raising skepticism about biological evolution, what they then do is they basically say, well, this must be telling us something about the nature of the evolutionary process, Hmm. which is, I think, rather interesting in terms of how you see evolutionary biologists think. Right, that evolutionary process keeps getting more and more intelligent (laughs) the more we find out. Well, if you are just tuning in, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are speaking with Dr. Faz Rana, a chemist and biochemist, author of The Cell's Design. Yeah, it's interesting the way um, Dr. Rana has... Uh, basically exposed the preconceived notions of evolutionists whereby uh, no matter what kind of evidence they seem to come up against, they always interpret it through an evolutionary worldview, which is what they start out with. It's not that the evidence is determining their worldview. The worldview is determining their evidence. Yeah, that's an extremely uh, important point that you're bringing up, you know, because in a sense, as I was alluding you know, to the fact that when you look at shared features in genomes of organisms, that can either reflect common descent or common design. Right. But the way in which science operates today, it operates according to this philosophical presupposition known as methodological naturalism. Right. Which basically says you cannot evoke the work of an intelligent agent to account for the universe or any phenomena within the universe, which means by definition, you have to explain things in mechanistic terms which means, by definition, the origin of life and the history of life have to be explained through evolutionary processes uh, because you cannot evoke the work of an intelligent agent. Therefore, even if you make a, your, your model makes a prediction, if that prediction is failed to, to be, is, if, you know, if the data uh, um, runs contrary to the prediction that you make, um, you can't abandon the theory. You just simply have to keep revising the theory over and over and over again, right. or you're left with gigantic question marks, but you can never abandon the theory because it's impossible to propose an alternate view, and the only other alternate view would be one where a mind is involved. Right. But as soon as you relax that requirement, you can easily see that there's reasons to be skeptical about biological evolution, and that those same reasons oftentimes are, are readily interpreted uh, from a design framework. So it's all about worldviews, and it's all about philosophy at the end of the day, more so, I believe, than actually the evidence at hand. I I would agree with that. We run into that a lot here on this program and on our uh, website and stuff. We we, um, have people writing in that already have their worldviews are already set in stone and you can give them all kinds of evidence to the contrary but they don't they either don't hear it or they find a way to rationalize that evidence to fit into their already preconceived worldview so really you you're talking to those kind of people you're kind of spinning your wheels trying to convince them of anything yes it, 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 that's that's true and, but i think that there are going to be people who are open minded who are standing on the sidelines, who see essentially the role that, that preconceived notions play, and they also see that there is strong evidence that challenges biological evolution and strong evidence that favors design, and those are the people that I think you can oftentimes win, uh, win, win over. Yes. Mm. You know, well, so I think, you know, uh, oftentimes, you know, this has been my experience as an apologist, oftentimes the people that you really are talking to are not 
the people that you're directly engaging, right? Uh, but rather the people who are observing the interaction. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I think Keith would agree that we're looking for the open-minded people on this program that are willing to look at both sides of the evidence and to see which side makes more sense. Right. And and there's one more piece of evidence, I think, that we can bring to bear here, because recently there was another prediction of evolution that was falsified. Uh, Dr. Rana, we, we heard in the news recently about the ENCODE project, and it was an attempt to try to categorize or, or catalog the DNA and see how much of the DNA is junk. And evolutionary theory predicted that a lot of the DNA would be this junk, unusable DNA because it's built by a random process. And so there would have been lots of information that was just discarded as the organism advanced down the tree of life. And yet that turned out to be also falsified. Can you fill us in on that? Yeah, and in my mind, this very well may be one of the most significant discoveries that have been made uh, in my lifetime as a biochemist, and that is th- this recognition that um, essentially, at minimum 80%, maybe even pushing 100% of the human genome and, and the genome of other organisms actually consists of functional DNA. And this is a radical revision uh, uh, of how people have viewed genomes as, again, being primarily a stockpile of junk DNA with very, very few sequences that actually were functionally important. And, and this revision comes from the ENCODE project, which is uh, a project that is still underway. It's been uh, going on for about 10 years now, but is revealing, again, that uh, a vast proportion of the human genome consists of biochemical activity that we know is functionally important for a process known as gene regulation how the information in the genome is used to build the organism. And as you pointed out, the expectation from an evolutionary perspective is that random processes operating on the genome are going to generate junk DNA over time. And, and that, again, the expectation is a vast proportion of the human genome should be junk. And what's interesting is design proponents and creationists have been for years predicting that when it's all said and done, that genomes of organisms are going to consist of functional elements. They're going to be primarily composed of uh, DNA sequences that are functional. And in fact, I was going back through articles I've written that are on our website, and as far back as 2000, I was writing predictions along those lines. And what's interesting is in, in that time frame, 1999-2000, which is when I joined Reasons to Believe on a full-time basis, there was literally very little, if anything, that we could say in response to the junk DNA challenge as apologists. There was very little that we could really say along those lines. And over the last uh, seven or eight years, there's been a mounting numbers of individual discoveries indicating that certain classes of junk DNA seem to be functional, but we could never really quantify the degree to which the junk DNA sequences were actually functional until the ENCODE project, and, and this is, again, mind-boggling that the genome is, has that degree of function. I mean, it's, it's, to me, I think, from an apologetic standpoint, one of the most profound discoveries, and just simply from a scientific standpoint, one of the most profound discoveries of my lifetime. Wonderful.
Well, uh, Dr. Rana, not to change gears too too much, but we have about 10 minutes or so left in the show. And Kirk and I have been involved working with the local state college here, Stockton College, and through Ratio Christi, which is an apologetics organization. I'm sure you're familiar with it. And we've had atheist students who've come in and questioned exactly how is it that somebody can line the Bible up with, if you're saying, okay, God exists, Jesus was resurrected, but when I look at the first story, when I look at Genesis, I don't see how this can be correlated with what science is telling me about the Big Bang and about the age of the earth. And and look, it says here that the earth was created first, and then days later is the sun, moon, and stars, and it just doesn't make any sense. So, can you give us a kind of a brief rundown if if you were speaking to somebody like that how would you explain to them how science actually doesn't contradict the description in Genesis chapter 1 Sure thing and uh to be clear I'm a, an old earth creationist so I would I'm a creationist meaning I believe God is responsible for bringing life into existence and for orchestrating a life's history intervening throughout life's history bringing about his creative purposes but I'm an old earth creationist in that I accept the scientific age for the earth and the age for the universe. And the way in which I then reconcile that with Genesis 1 is to recognize, first of all, that the, the word day that's translated from the Hebrew word yom can mean a period of time. And so we would look at the days as being periods of time, eons, as opposed to 24 hours. And that right away eliminates a significant amount of uh, problems in terms of correlating Genesis 1 with the scientific record. I look at Genesis 1-1 as describing the beginning of the universe, and according to cosmologists, the universe has a beginning, matter, energy, space, and time. And in fact, there are many places throughout Scripture it speaks about time having a beginning, yet from a scientific perspective, this is a rather recent concept that time actually had a beginning, traceable back to the space-time theorems of general relativity and the work of Stephen Hawking, Roger Penrose, and George Ellis. So this is a place where the Bible is anticipating a, a future scientific insight um, well ahead of when that insight was made on the part of the scientific community. Uh, then, as we go through the different days of creation, I look at Genesis 1-2 as describing the Earth in its primordial state, Again, there's remarkable agreement between that depiction and what science is now telling us about what the early Earth would have looked like. Day one would be not the creation of light, but actually, we would argue, it is the appearance of light on the surface of the Earth. Because in in Genesis 1-2, it talks about the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, which is uh, giving us a frame of reference. And so we're to think about these events as if we were a hypothetical observer on the surface of the Earth not as an observer looking down on the planet. And so as a hypothetical observer on the surface of the Earth, uh, as the atmosphere of the Earth undergoes a transformation from opaque to translucent, light would appear on the surface of the Earth, and the rotation of the Earth would set up a day-night cycle. Day two is talking about the setting up of a stable water cycle. Uh, Day three, the creation of the continents, uh, and then also occupying the land with plants. Day four is not the creation of the sun, moon, and stars according to how I would view Genesis 1, but again, another transformation of the atmosphere so that as a hypothetical observer, you could now actually see 
the sun, moon, and stars, because it doesn't say God cre- uh, uh, that, that the sun, moon, and stars were created on day four. It says, let them appear. And I think that's a little bit different than God saying, let, let them be, cre- let, um, God created the sun, moon, and stars. Now, it does mention parenthetically that he created the sun, moon, and stars, but that is essentially a parenthetical statement reminding the readers that as the, as the sun, moon, and stars appeared for the first time, that they are two the objects of God's creative work. It doesn't mean that they were created on that time, but created prior to uh, the fourth day event. Day five would be, again, populating the Earth's oceans and the, and the skies with animal life forms. Day six, populating the land with an, uh, animal forms. And then, of course, human beings are created. So the overall flow very nicely matches uh, the, the geological history and, I believe, the life history uh, for the Earth. And so I see very strong correlation between the Genesis 1 account and the scientific record. Mm, Sounds very good. Now, uh, in this model, would there be room for overlap of the days? I'm thinking about, you know, the day when there was plant life, but could there also have been some overlap with the fish of the sea so that you have that? Or would these be hard fixed? There was an eon of time and the end and then a new eon. Oh, I would very much see this as being overlap, if you will, and and that the events that are being described represent highlights, if you will. So we're not getting the, the, the play-by-play account of what God did. We're getting highlights where only a handful of miracles are being described to us, uh, not not the full set of details. And so, uh, again, I would, I would say that there's overlap going on that there, there's an overall chronological flow to Genesis 1, but there's also topical treatment as well. Uh, so, for example, when it talks about life being created in the oceans, it talks about the swarming animals, animals like you would expect to see in the Cambrian explosion and in the Ordovician radiation, and then right, it talks about, about sea mammals being created. So what mm. the, the author is doing is treating topically the events that happened in the ocean before he then moves to the events happening in the in the air, or then the events happening on the land. So it's it's a chronological flow overall, but there's also a topical treatment kind of overlaid on that. And in fact, that's pretty typical for how we would communicate. If you pick up a book in paleontology or a book on life's history, that's exactly how scientists would communicate that same information. It's not strictly chronological, though there may be an overall chronological flow, but there's also a logical treatment and a topical treatment as well of of the material. So if you're talking about life in the waters, you kind of tell the whole story before you move on to life in the land, and as you move to describing life on the land, you may back up a little bit and then continue with the story. All right. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Very interesting. Now, I'm not familiar. Is this model have a specific name? Is this the framework model, or um... uh, it would be called a, a day age model? A day okay. so it would be an older day age model. All right. Very uh, good. You know, it, it's similar to the analogical day view. Uh, that would be another view that would be somewhat similar, though not identical to it. There's another view that's called the intermittent day view. Uh, Robert Newman uh, is a, an advocate of that particular position, as is John Lennox as well. So those are three views that are, are very similar, though not identical. So there is a, a, a pretty rich tradition of people looking at Genesis 1 in this way. Excellent. Well, Dr. Rana, we want to give you the opportunity to talk about websites, books, 
anything, ways people can contact you, fill our listeners in on, on those things. Sure thing. Well, uh, if people want to learn more about our organization, I would encourage them to go to our website, reasons.org, www.reasons.org, and there's a whole host of articles and podcasts and other resources available to people, many of which are freely available for, for no cost, uh, that deal with science-faith issues uh, across the spectrum, not just in the life sciences, but in cosmology and geology as well. And so I would really encourage people, if they're interested in science-faith issues, to check out our website. And uh, also, I have a, we have a, a Facebook page, RTB underscore official, if people are interested in, in following the ministry through Facebook. I also have a, a Facebook page as well, if people want to look me up. Uh, and ask me to be their friend, I'm happy to do that as well. And I oftentimes will post articles and podcasts on my Facebook page uh, dealing with some of the, the projects that I'm most recently working on. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Rana, for being a guest on Evidence for Faith. We've, we really enjoyed having you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you. And you've been listening to Evidence for Faith. You can send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. Join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. That was good!